I remember as a child uh, that whenever one of my sisters would get some unfair advantage over me, uh, which happened a lot with sisters. Any of you have sisters, you know what I'm talking about, right? When your sister got stuff they shouldn't have gotten, it really, it really wasn't fair. And so I would go to my parents and I would plead my case, right? I would appeal to their sense of justice and righteousness and fairness, and I would boldly declare to them, I would say, that's not fair. To which their regular reply was, life's not fair. Okay, which doesn't help, right? When you're the one pleading your cause, it doesn't help to hear life's not fair. And yet, when my children come to me, and either one of them says, well, brother got something that I should have gotten, that's not fair. What do I tell them? Life's not fair. Okay, I tell you that because Daniel chapter 9, which is our text this morning, is not fair. Okay? Daniel is now a very old man when we get to chapter 9. Uh, he went to Babylon as a teenager in the first deportation, which was 605 B.C. Uh, Daniel 9 starts by telling us it's the first year of Xerxes, which we know is 538 B.C., which is 67 years later. So if he's a teenager when he goes, now we fast forward 67 years. That makes Daniel pretty old. Okay? He's been faithful to God his entire life. He stayed faithful even when his life was threatened, right? We remember the stories, right? Um, Daniel in the lion's den. We remember the story of Daniel uh, refusing to eat what was from the king's table, okay? It would have been very easy for Daniel to just become a Babylonian like all these other captured people, but Daniel doesn't do that. Instead, he stays faithful to God his entire life, okay? Interestingly, there's only two characters in Scripture who are major characters that nothing is said bad about them at all. Daniel is one of those. Daniel is an awesome example of faith and righteousness. So now towards the end of his life in chapter 9, Daniel has been studying the Scriptures, and he knows that it's about time for God's people to go home. It's time for the exile to be over. It's time for us to go back to the promised land. Okay, notice starting the second part of verse 2. He says, I, Daniel understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem should last 70 years. Okay, back to Jeremiah chapter 25, God told the prophet Jeremiah, you're going to go into exile. It's going to be about 70 years that you're there. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, here's a side note. Uh, one of the first things that a lot of people do incorrectly when we go to interpret Scripture is we take all of the numbers very literally. Okay, like very good, modern, Western-thinking people because that's what we are, right? And we read the number 70 and we think, okay, I know what 70 means. It's one less than 71, one more than 69. Okay, no more, no less. 70 means 70. In the ancient world, though, they don't read things like that. Okay? In Hebrew culture specifically, numbers are often very symbolic. Okay? Especially the number seven. Right? Seven is the complete number. Right? It was seven days of creation. There's seven days of a week. Okay? Seven means complete. Seventy is the number that represents a complete lifetime. Okay? Seventy is a complete number, not a literal number. I remember later in the New Testament, Jesus meets with one of his apostles and they say, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, seven times 70. 
Jesus doesn't mean literally 490 times is how often you forgive your brother. So if he sins at you 491 times, you don't have to forgive him that last time. It's not what Jesus says. No, Jesus says you forgive your brother the complete number of times, right? Seven times 70. So Daniel's not sitting around in Babylon thinking, okay, I've done the precise calculations, and based on the prophet Jeremiah, in two years and six months and 18 days at 3 p.m., it's time for us to go home, right? That's not what Daniel's doing. No, Daniel's saying, okay, I've been in exile for a lifetime. It's close to 70 literal years. Now, at the end of my life, I would like to see God make good on his word. I want to see Jerusalem restored. The people go home. I want to see the end of exile. And so in Daniel 9, what he does is he prays one of the most amazing, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. From verse 4 to verse 19 is an amazing example of faithful prayer. He praises God. He remembers God's promises. He repents of sin, and not just his own sin, but the sins of all the people. He calls on God's mercy and God's grace. He prays such a prayer, he puts God at the center of the story instead of himself. Okay, often when we pray, it's all about us, but Daniel doesn't pray that way. Daniel recognizes God is in the center. Okay, he petitions God humbly, and it's just a wonderful example of how we should pray. Okay, notice how this prayer ends. Verse 17. Daniel prays, Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Okay, remember, the desolate sanctuary is the temple in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar bulldozed, right? It was leveled. Daniel says, Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name, right? It's Jerusalem on Zion. He says, We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Okay, so Daniel's main point with this prayer is that God, it's time to act. It's time to end the exile, to restore Jerusalem, to send the people home. Okay, here's what should happen next. Okay, what should happen in the next verse is God should speak to Daniel and say, Amen, Daniel. You're right. The exile is now going to be over. You in your old age will get to see Jerusalem restored. You'll get to see the temple rebuilt and the captives set free. The world will be set right and then you will get to enjoy peace for the rest of your days. Be at ease, good and faithful servant. The hard part is over. And now my people will know shalom. That's how Daniel 9 should read. But life's not fair. Instead, what happens is Daniel gets another vision. Another apocalyptic vision. Kind of like what we looked about last week in chapter 7. The angel Gabriel shows up at the very end of Daniel's prayer. And he says to him, he says, Daniel, God is pleased with you. Okay, he calls Daniel highly esteemed by God. Okay, and he says, here, Daniel, is what's going to happen next. Okay, notice starting in verse 24, chapter 9. He says, 77s 
are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, if that's confusing to you and doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you're in really good company. This is easily one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible, not just in the book of Daniel. There's probably more ink that's been spilled trying to interpret this couple of paragraphs uh, than any other section in all of the book of Daniel. I'm not going to be overly dogmatic about this. I will even admit that there's a slim possibility, however remote, that I might be wrong on this. I know that's shocking for some of you and hard for you to believe, but the possibility is at least out there. We'll at least admit that, right? Okay, but I really do think it's probably simpler than some commentators try to make it. All right, here's what I think is happening in this, in this text. I think Gabriel is coming to Daniel and he's saying, yes, the immediate exile is going to be over quite soon. Okay, it was not long after the Persians overthrew the Babylonians that the Jews got to go home and they started building a new temple and new walls and a new city of Zion. Okay, yes, the immediate exile is going to be over quite soon. Okay, but that's not going to end your suffering. Okay, Jeremiah was right. The exile did last right about 70 years. Okay, but now that God has caused the Persians to conquer the Babylonians, yes, God is going to send the Jews back to the promised land. All of that is really good news. But what Daniel is praying for is not going to end all their problems. Because okay, here's part two of the vision. Gabriel says there will be 77s, or a complete number of generations of suffering that will continue. In other words, don't go back to the promised land and relax and think, okay, now everything's okay, we finally got what we wanted, we're finally back home because it's not going to be okay. okay. Your geographic exile will end. You will go back to Jerusalem, but the spiritual exile will continue for a long time. How long? For a complete number of generations. Seventy-sevens. A complete number of generations. It will be centuries before God gives you true and lasting peace. But eventually, after the complete number of generations, the anointed one will come and he will be put to death. Okay, an interesting anointed one is is a Hebrew Aramaic expression, okay, which the word is Messiah, right? The Messiah will come. In Greek, it's the word Christ. Okay, this Messiah Christ figure will come, but he will be put to death. Okay, and shortly after that, the city and the temple will again be destroyed. 
Okay, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself references Daniel chapter 9, and he's applying Daniel 9 to his own day, and Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, in 70 AD, right, about 35 years after Jesus dies, the Romans march four legions into Jerusalem under the command of General Titus. They completely destroy the temple. And since that day, the Jews have not been able to offer their sacrifices. In 70 AD, God permanently ended the sacrificial system. Also interestingly, after a few more revolts by the Jewish people, the Romans wanted to make sure that Mount Zion never again became usable to the Jews. And so what they did is they built a huge temple to Jupiter right on the Temple Mount. They wanted to make sure that this place will have an abomination resting on it so that never again could they sacrifice to the one God of Israel. Later on in history, Christians would build a church on the site and eventually the Muslims would conquer the area and build a mosque. The Dome of the Rock is sitting on the Temple Mount today, uh, built by the Jews centuries ago. I'm built by the Muslims centuries ago. I think the abomination that causes desolation Okay, is the huge pagan temple that the Romans later built on the Temple Mount. Right. By the way, uh, even if they were to kick all the Muslims out of Jerusalem tomorrow, even if they were to bulldoze the Dome of the Rock and try to build a brand new temple on Mount Zion, we still wouldn't be able to go back to the sacrificial system. Okay, they still wouldn't be able to offer the sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament because there's no priests anymore. Very convincingly, God ended the sacrificial system in 70 A.D. I think Daniel sees a vision in chapter 9 that says the full exile will not be over until Jesus comes, is put to death, and then a short time later, about 35 years later, or he calls it half a 70 in 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 the vision, says the temple and Jerusalem will be destroyed again. I think all of this holds together historically really well. And I think 500 some odd years before Jesus is ever born, Daniel gets a vision of the Messiah that's coming. And I don't think it needs to be more complicated than that. All right, but now we ask the question, okay, so what? You say, great, right? Daniel saw all this stuff that happened and that happened. But again, preacher, that was 2,000 years ago. What difference does that make for how I have to go to work tomorrow? Who cares? You know, I remember back in 2001, uh, which was an important year for me, I graduated high school. Okay? And all my friends were really excited because after all of those years of study, after 12 years of excruciating years of public education, finally all our studying was done. Finally, we got to walk across the stage, throw our caps in the air. Now, finally, after all of that, surely now we can have peace. Surely, life gets easier after high school, right? Now that we got high school behind us, we can have peace. Later that same year, I met Rachel. We started dating. A few years later, we were very excited because we were about to graduate college and then get married. Surely, that'll make life easier, right? And it has, honey. It really has. It's been great. Okay, and then the next thing we did is we started getting into our real careers. Okay, surely once we get real jobs and get, our, get ourselves settled, then we can have peace, right? 
Okay, maybe the next thing we need, if we really want to chase peace, let's have a baby. Okay, that'll bring us some peace. Maybe we'll have peace when we get out of debt. Okay, maybe we'll have peace when we finally get the kids out of the house. Maybe we can have peace when we just get that vacation we always wanted to take. Maybe we'll have peace when we finally get to retire. Okay, so please tell me, when is it that I finally get to achieve peace? All right, notice this next slide. This is where I've been going this whole time, and this is what I think is so important about this text and what I think is so important about how we look at the world. And most of us walk around with this thought in our heads. We say, if I could just finish or achieve or get over or accomplish or whatever it is, if I could just get this thing, then I'd have peace. And you can fill in any number of things into that blank, and usually it changes throughout your life. You go through stages in life where you think this next thing that I get, if I can just get that, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be happy. Then I can have peace. What I need to make my life right is just this. Daniel thought, if I can just get through the exile and make it back to Jerusalem, then I'll be happy. We think, well, if I could just have a little bit more money, or if I could just get the house that I really want, if I could just get the respect that I deserve, Well, maybe if I just had better friends or more friends or was better liked at work. Or if I could just get over this one addiction or this one sin that's weighing me down. Or if I could just get my health in better shape. Or if I could just get my marriage fixed. Or if I could just get my kids raised. Or if I could just retire and quit having to go to that job. Okay, whatever it is that you put into that blank, if I could just get that one thing, then I'd be happy. Then I'd have peace. I tell you this morning that whatever you put in that blank space is functionally your God. That's your idol. We're much more sophisticated than those people in the Old Testament, right? We would never build some idol and bow down to it. That's old people. that We we would never do that. We're much better than they are. But if I could just get this one thing, right? Whatever you put in that blank is functionally your God. And most of our functional idols fall into one of three categories. Okay, the first one is control. Right? If I could just get more control over whatever this chaos is that I'm experiencing in my life, if I could just get these pieces to fit together better over here, then I'd have peace. So maybe I need to make more money so I have more control. Or maybe I need to get a promotion so I can be more in charge. Or maybe I need to get this relationship fixed. Whatever it is, if I could have more control, then I'd have peace. That's one idol. Okay, the next idol we often cling to is significance, right? If I could just get these relationships in better shape, if I could just find my purpose, right? Or if I could just find greater meaning in what I'm doing, if I could achieve this thing, I'd have more significance. Okay, the third idol we often cling to, though, is comfort, right? If I could just quit having to scratch and claw, if I could just get the house set up the way I really need it to, if I could just get better entertainment options, if I could just quiet my mind with this, if I could just get this pleasure over here that seems like what I really want, okay? We have our idols. All right, but here's the lesson that Daniel teaches us. And that is that achieving the next thing won't bring you peace. Okay, and we know that, Right? And yet, what are most of us going to do tomorrow? We're going to think, well, but if I could just get 
right? Okay. But achieving the next thing won't bring you peace. Okay. Even if that next thing is a good thing or is a God thing, it won't bring you peace, right? Going home from exile was a good thing. It was a God thing. It didn't bring them peace. Okay. If it's for you paying off debt or getting rid of an addiction or fixing a relationship, all of those are good things. Okay, but getting the next thing will not bring you peace. Why? Because there's always another thing. I think the message of Daniel 9 is that the Persians sending the Jews home would not be the end of the story. There is a whole lot more story to come. Real peace would not happen for God's people until the real exile was over. And the real exile wouldn't be over until Jesus came and taught us how to fill that blank in with something other than a thing. And instead we fill it with the anointed one of God, God's Messiah. Okay, Here's my final thought. You can have shalom now by walking closely with God. Okay, and I change that word peace to shalom intentionally. It is a bigger word. It's a much more appropriate word. Okay, peace is the absence of conflict. Right, if you're waiting for a time in your life when there's no more conflict, you're going to be waiting a while. Right? But Scripture teaches us you can have shalom now. Okay, in spite of the conflict. Shalom is a word to describe completeness and harmony. Throughout the Old Testament, when the covenant people of God were in a right relationship with God, the word they used to describe it was a word we translate peace, which is too weak. It's this bigger word, shalom. If we will exist as the covenant people in a right relationship with God, walking closely with our God, we can have peace regardless of our struggle. And part of the reason that we can have peace regardless of our struggle is because we know what our real struggle is. We know what our real problem is. Our real problem isn't achieving the next thing. Our real problem is that we have sin in our lives and the only answer to that sin is a right relationship with God Almighty. Once we have that, then that puts all those other problems in perspective, right? The worst thing that can happen in my life is that I die and go and be with God for all of eternity. If that's the floor... I'm fine, right? And nothing can shake that kind of peace. So this morning, I hope you have that kind of peace in your life. I hope that you are walking closely with your God. I hope you will do whatever you need to do to start walking more closely with God. So if you haven't become a Christian, if you haven't made Jesus truly the Savior of your life, if you don't really know Him, we would love more than anything to sit down with you and talk with you about what it looks like to have Jesus as your Lord. What does it look like to truly be a Christian, to put him on in baptism? We would love to have that conversation with you. In fact, at this point in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. And during this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, And this is a time in our service where we as the church are here for you. Uh, If there's any kind of a need that you have, if you would like to talk to us or pray with us about anything that we as a church can help you with, now is the time for that. And before we sing that song, I'd like to close this with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.